All right, let me start. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is uh, our, the second episode, but the first with my co-host, Sebastiano, my man Seb, who, along with me, Robert, are probably the two biggest Bret Hart fans out on the planet. Uh, last week's preview, you heard how I became a Bret Hart fan. Um, I'm going to spend the first few minutes asking Seb to explain, A, how he became a wrestling fan, B, who was his first favorite wrestler, and C, how he, how he became a huge Bret Hart fan. Go ahead, Seb. It's all on you, baby. All right, perfect. Now, in terms of being a wrestling fan, I've been watching since I was three years old. And Damn. like, I know it's crazy talk, um, but it all started. It's similar to your boxing story. I started watching all the combat sports with my dad. So starting at three, my first memories, uh, we're just sitting on the couch watching some wrestling. And I remember Hulk Hogan, but I never thought he was my favorite wrestler. So I'd run around the house doing the Hawkster pose down, <laughs> trying to flex my 20 pound muscles and just pretend to be Hulk Hogan, but I didn't really understand anything about wrestling at the time. I just saw right. you know, he had he was a cool action figure. He was a superhero. That was uh, that was probably around the time I was obsessed with He-Man. So he was like a real life He-Man. Uh, what year would so, this be? What what year would this be? Oh man, uh, like 1984, 1985 okay. time frame. All right. All right. And so I was I was watching, I was hooked every time I could see uh, wrestling on TV. I just knew that it was larger than life people. Uh, but the first time I ever remember really connecting to wrestlers, uh, well, first there was Magnificent Don Morocco. Uh, and I, I don't remember a lot of his stuff because I was a little young back when it was he was in his prime. Uh, but I do remember vividly uh, he had an action figure and one of those LGN dolls. And uh, he always had a shirt and said Beach Bum on it. And just as a kid, anyone saying <laughs> bomb, you thought that was the funniest thing you've ever heard in your life. So I did. I always liked Don Morocco. And if anyone's an old school fan of live audio wrestling, you probably remember Big Daddy Donnie Abreu. Uh, I used to always talk about Don Morocco, and I thought I was the only one oh, who yes. was super into him. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, but it's funny because on the first episode, the preview episode that um, I recorded and yeah. uh, posted, I talked about how it was Greg Valentine and Don Morocco in July of 1981 that were the first promos I ever saw in the first wrestling show I ever watched. You started watching wrestling at three. I was 13 when I started watching wrestling because my father was telling me, oh, that shit is fake. Don't <laughs> listen to it. Don't watch it. Boxing is where it's at. But one afternoon, like I said, on, on, I was flipping through the channels and on the, on the Spanish station here in New York, they on a Saturday afternoon they were showing All Star WWF All Star Wrestling, and Don Morocco and Greg Valentine cut these crazy promos, and I was hooked. And at the time, Morocco was feuding with Bob Backlund over the WWF World Title, and they had a famous sixty-minute uh, Broadway at Madison Square Garden. I think right before I started watching um, wrestling at that time. So it's funny, Morocco was was like the first guy that I was like, wow. And then, of course, the Morocco Snooker feud in 83 was probably the, the last great thing. No, not not really, because Snooker had the great feud with Piper the following year. But, uh, yeah, Morocco was definitely uh, 
Bum Beach the, <laughs> when the first few cars I went went to Seb, they would they it, the garden car the garden crowds wouldn't go Bum Beach, they would go backwards. No, <laughs> instead of Beach Bum, they would go Bum Beach, Bum Beach, and then eventually it would sound Bum Beach, uh, Beach Bum. <laughs> so yeah, I I remember the magnificence of Don Morocco, and around this time. When you started watching wrestling, Morocco had a great feud with Ricky Steamboat. Keep that in mind later on because that's who we'll be talking about in his match with Bret Hart. So after, um, um, who was your first, was Morocco your first favorite wrestler? or He was almost my first favorite wrestler, but the first one that I remember, the only reason I don't say him is because uh, I was getting hazy memories back then um, just because I was young at the time. One thing though, um, because I actually rewatched uh, Morocco Snuka today, just this afternoon when I was mm-hmm. on lunch, and uh, everybody always talks about the spot off the top of the cage, which was incredible, and Snuka hits the superfly on Morocco. Uh, but when I was a kid, the thing that I was obsessed with for the finish of the match was that Morocco just got head butted. He was flying out the door, and I just thought it was the coolest was thing a- I've ever seen in my life. That was that was a hell of a bump Morocco took oh, jumping out the cage like that. He could have <laughs> he could have easily broken something and ended his career right then and there. Oh, I know it's uh, it's crazy to look back at like what a bumping machine for a guy his size he was because I didn't know anything about bumping at the time, but I was uh, just right. even watching back that guy was fantastic. Um, now the, my first favorite wrestler, and this is probably a lot of people. And one of the all-time greatest still and overall in every way was Macho Man Randy Savage. That guy. Oh, yes. Like, can't even tell you how many times my older brother would go around the house just talking like Macho Man. And he's 13 years older than me. So he was was a little bit more into other stuff at the time than I was as well. But I'd hear him just walking around the house and he'd call my sister Elizabeth, even though her name was Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let, let me tell you something, Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what it is is what it is. Uh, and somewhere deep in the basement of my house, I'm sure that I've got a cassette tape of my brother cutting a promo on my sister with her as a lesbian. <laughs> and they were just That's oh, great. golden, golden era. And I was I was obsessed with Macho Man. So he was he was my first. There was there's other people along the way. I loved Warrior for a little bit. Uh, loved Morocco. Loved Piper. But Macho Man was definitely my first guy that I was like, that's my guy. Yeah, what I love what what I what I loved when they brought in Macho Man. Macho Man came to the WF in June of 1985. He came mm-hmm. in the same week that Superfly Snooker got fired, and that was ironic because they both. If you look at the career tra- tra- trajectory in the World Wrestling Federation, they both had similar trajectories. They both came in as heels, had a hot feud with the champion, and then because of the charisma and the overall uniqueness of their character, they were forced to become baby faces. And um, keep that in mind, listeners, because next episode we'll be talking a whole lot more about Randy Savage because next the next episode will be Macho Man versus Bret Hart and how Bret Hart and the Hart Foundation were a huge factor in the babyface turn of Macho Man Randy Savage. So, yeah, Macho Man, you can make an argument if you combine everything. Promos, uh, working, charisma, 
uh, drawing power. He's on the short list for if you put everything together as the greatest overall wrestler in the history of the WWF. He's on that short list. Because I'm just not talking... If you look at it all, he's he's an A in every category. Drawing card, promo, working ability, charisma, everything. He, he's an A in everything. While you got A pluses like Hulk Hogan was an A plus in draw in drawing, and Stone Cold was an A plus in drawing, and an A in working, and an A in promo. Savage is on that level. He was a much better worker than Hogan. And I always said, Seb, that the best matches Hogan ever had were with Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh, absolutely. Macho Man could carry almost anyone to a match. And I know he gets a lot of flack nowadays because people say that he planned out his matches in advance. But I, I, I don't, don't really care, care about the sausages care. made. <laughs> I just want it to taste good. As long good. as it tastes good. Right? Yeah. Don't, uh, you know, all, all the respect to Flair, but I was always a, a savage guy. And just because he's... It's yeah. funny. It's funny you said that he uh he planned everything out, and we'll get into this next next ne- next time. Uh, Bret Hart and Savage had planned out a match, and Vince told them at the last second, "I don't like that match. You're changing it. This is what you're gonna do." We'll talk more about that. So Savage could, if he had to, work on the fly. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that guy, <laughs> you just watched even his promos. You, you just some of the times you think, oh, he's had it meticulously planned out. Then some of his best promos, he's just like talking gibberish, but you just you felt every word. It didn't even matter what he said in those promos. Just... And and that and that heel turn against uh on the biggie, what was it? The the what was it called? The biggie event? What was it called? Oh, the one in the the, the one in Milwaukee where he turned on Hogan during the match against the Twin Towers. Oh he... February of eighty nine February of eighty nine. That promo he cut backstage. You got lust in your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> he, I'm going to spend. He splat. He splatted. Uh, oh my God, Hogan over Elizabeth. Oh, that that was just great. That oh. was just great. Even though Elizabeth couldn't stop from laughing throughout the whole thing, but we were kids, so we wouldn't know. <laughs> uh, it was all good to us. Now, the big events uh, I haven't even mentioned yet, but that was actually the one in Toronto with. Uh, Hogan versus Orndorff, and that was one of the biggest events for gate and attendance in the history of the it, of the company. It it was it was number one until WrestleMania three, which was, I think, the reason. You know what? You just brought up a great point. The reason they had WrestleMania in Detroit, um, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of fans from Detroit would go to Toronto and vice versa to see the cards, yeah. and. 65,000, I believe, attended the big event in August of 86. And then they decided to hold WrestleMania in the Pontiac Silverdome. It's it's disputed what the attendance was. 78,000, 93,000. I'm going to go with 78,000. That way our boy Brett still has the records. (laughs) (laughs) But whatever it is, I mean, Toronto, the history of wrestling in Toronto, uh, by the way, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Seb is from Ontario. Uh, do you live in Toronto or outside the yeah. outskirts of Toronto? Uh, I was legit born and raised in Toronto, so I was uh, always downtown. Okay. I live just on the outskirts now, though. Okay, yeah. all right. Toronto has a hu- has a very huge and rich history when it comes to professional wrestling, and 
for years, and we talk of Bret Hart versus Ricky Steamboat today. Ricky Steamboat was a massive draw in Toronto because the Crockett's in the early 80s after the Sheik lost the territory, the Crockett's took over. And Ricky Steamboat, Roddy Piper, Ric Flair, they were all, Jimmy Snooker, they were all huge draws in Toronto. And um, King Kong Mosca. Um, but after... Not Jack Tunney was the, Jack Tunney was the son to uh, Frank Tunney. Frank 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 Tunney. After Frank Tunney died, and Frank Tunney uh, uh, died right around the same time as Vince McMahon Senior died. Uh, Jack Tunney made a deal with the WWF to take away the territory from the Crockett's and go to the WWF. And one of the reasons why Bret Hart was hired and brought to the WWF along with uh. Dynamite Kid and Davy Boy Smith was because Vince McMahon had started tapings in Hamilton, Ontario. His first taping, I believe, was in September of 1984. And he made a deal with Stu Hart, which he reneged on, where he was supposed to pay Stu Hart $100,000 a year. I think he gave him a one time payment. And yeah. that, he was like, afterwards, he said, Go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah, which is typical but typical Vince McMahon. But he made a deal with Stu that he would buy the territory. And Stu said, yeah, but I want Jim Neidhart, Bret Hart, Davey Boy Smith, uh, Dynamite Kid, and Bad News uh, Allen to all get jobs. Bad News Allen went somewhere else. He said, nah, I'm not going to work for Vince. Even though it would have been perfect for Bad News Allen, because at the time, the WWF had a deal with New Japan, and Bad News Allen was making most of his money with New Japan, but Ben Allen said, no, I'm not going, going for it. And Jim Nyhart didn't go for it at first either. Jim Nyhart instead went to Florida first before he came to the World Wrestling Federation. Bret Hart, in the fall of 84, this is the first time I saw him, he was, they, he was a job to the stars. They, 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 really was, they really was effing him. Matter of fact, they even came up with a gimmick. Cowboy Bret Hart, oh my God, that would have been horrible. That that would have been like when Cody yeah. Rhodes was uh, Stardust. It was horrible. But uh, George Scott and Jimmy Hart and came uh, came to an uh, uh, came to an understanding to change the gimmick, and they brought Jim Neidhart and Bret Hart together in February of '85 to form the Hart Foundation. And I remember because Bret would only wrestle in the Hamilton tapings; he wouldn't wrestle in Pennsylvania yet. And little by little, each week you saw a change in character until finally they formed the Heart Foundation and he didn't miss a, miss a beat after that. Now, uh, back to Seb. After uh, Macho Man was your favorite wrestler, who was, your, who, who, who was more, uh, who, who, were, who then became your favorite wrestler or was, or was Brett next? Yeah, so one thing on the, uh, since we're talking about the big event before, uh, it's a yeah. fun Toronto fact. Hulk Hogan, three times, three different decades, drew 60,000 plus in Toronto. So that's like crazy okay, so huge we're how talking, big we're talking, Hulk was back in the day for Toronto. We're talking too. Paul Londorf, yeah. Ultimate Warrior, and The Rock. And The Rock, right? yep. Yeah. So he, uh, he sold out Skydome, he sold out CNE. So Hogan was a huge draw. So I always... Well, you could, and you could make an argument that Hulk Hogan is the greatest draw in Canadian wrestling history 
because in Montreal, he drew one massive crowd after another, besides those three 60,000 plus in Toronto. If there was a 60,000, if they would have held a WrestleMania in Montreal with Hogan headlining, I don't know what Olympic Stadium held out, but there'd be people across the street paying tickets just to watch the building. <laughs> yeah, Hogan actually took on Jacques Rougeau in like an indie date, basically. And they drew, I think it was close to 10,000 people for a, for a nothing card. And that was uh, Hogan against Rougeau was, when what? Rougeau pinned him clean. Was that Rougeau's retirement match? It was. It was, uh, yeah. it was at the yeah. Bell Center, I believe. And uh, and then they drew. It was him, and uh, and then PCO took on uh, the Giant on that card too. And I think that was an over the top rope challenge match. So Hogan was still drawing in, even when he didn't have the big Fed, he could still draw him in in Montreal too. So guy's a monster draw, basically. Um, yeah, well, especially in Canada, they, they they you know they talk about you know how he's one of the two or three biggest draws in. United States American history. Well, people forget Toronto and Montreal. He was a super draw. And as you 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 attended that match with The Rock, yeah. he got cheered over The Rock at the <laughs> at the time when The Rock was the biggest wrestling star on the planet. That just shows you how huge Hogan was in Canada. Yeah, and there was a lot of people acting surprised at the time, but Hogan and Toronto you had to expect that he was going to be over huge. Rock. Yeah, I think the only I think the only person Hogan would they, they wouldn't have treated Hogan like that would have been Bret Hart. Absolutely. I don't think uh Hogan would have gotten the cheers over Bret Hart. But over the rock, over Stone Cold, I think that's the reason why Stone Cold refused to have that match with Hogan. He knew he knew the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stone Cold's a smart man. He's uh <laughs> put him out there against Scott Hall. He can have his quick match and look good. <laughs> yeah. but, but overall, but yeah. you 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 attended that that was a great that was a great match and Hogan's knees were shot. He he couldn't move, and yet that match was a tremendous match. Oh, so good. Over delivered and that was the craziest crowd I've ever seen in my life. And I've been to multiple GSP shows in Toronto and Montreal, but right, 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 that right, pop right. for Hogan Rock, that was insanity. But so for my next favorite, Hogan was always near the top, but I was never quite a Hogan guy, but Brett uh, was really my next guy. I dabbled around with a lot of different people, but Brett, anyone who's Canadian listening can understand how massive Bret Hart was in the time frame from late 1980s until you know, 2000s when he retired in WCW. Brett was, like they say, national hero, and people doubt that. I know Bischoff has even said he doubts that, but you, you can't even understand how big of a draw he was. I, I can... I don't, I don't understand why Bischoff doubts that or, or doubted that, because when they had the... They had a huge crowd at that Monday Nitro in it's either March or April of 1999 mm. when Goldberg, who was the biggest star in WCW at the time, um, he challenges Goldberg and, you know, he has the the steel plate underneath yeah. his, his, his Toronto Maple Leafs jersey and Goldberg collapses and the the crowd went apeshit for, for Bret Hart. So I don't know how Bischoff could, could, could say that when he was there that night and were his biggest star was was booed out the building and they went crazy with Brett and then what they do 
they dropped the program right then and there. Unbelievable. Wow. It's, and how often <laughs> do they come back to Canada after that? They just they drop the ball on the whole Bret Hart run. That's that's it, like later that, podcast. We'll be <laughs> we'll be we'll be talking about that's that'll probably be one podcast onto itself. The 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 failure that they that they did with Bret Hart, but yeah, yeah uh, Bret Hart. So what was the first match that you was impressed with and, and you and your mind said, yeah, this is my man. This is my man, Bret Hart. So Hart Foundation were huge for me. I always loved Demolition and Hart Foundation growing up. And just seeing them as a tag team was always, it was always a treat because I love the heart attack and you try and go in the schoolyard and replicate it and, you know, do your thing. Mm. But Brett was always, he was always a cool wrestler and he was always the Canadian wrestler. So good thing he wasn't the cowboy because I don't think he would have stuck around. But <laughs> I, I, I vividly remember it's around the time that he was on Saturday Night Main Event against Macho Man. And I had uh, one of those old WWF magazines and I brought it into school. And, All right, you uh, know what? Let's stop that right there. The match we'll be talking about next. Save that. Save that story. For next time, I'll save the story. Save the story for All next right. time. Not so, a Brett, be, uh, so right. let's let's get into now the backstory to this match with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, and um, the greatest wrestling book ever written was Bret Hart: My Real Life in the Cartoon World of Wrestling. To me, that is the greatest wrestling book. Now, we you've had a lot of great books. Chris Jericho's had a couple of great books. Mick Foley had some sensational books. Uh, the Brian Pillman book that came out a few years ago was an excellent book. But, man, this, this, in my opinion, is the best book ever written because, A, Bret Hart, and I don't know what, what uh, drove him to do this, but for his entire career, Seb, he made audio recordings of, of everyday life. And he used these recordings to write this book. And he said on many occasions, you know, the book is over, well, the book is 600, 550 pages. He said there's, an, he said there's another 650 that they had to edit out. Yeah. So, I, I mean, because, because of all the information he had. But I want to get to the chapter and go, go through this because I was looking at the book. And I want to read. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. Coming up to it right now. This will help us talk about the backstory to this match. Okay, here we go. All right, here we go, right here. Okay. And for those of you who want to follow along or read it, it's chapter 19 in this book, the chapter entitled Throne Bones. Okay, and he's talking about he, he, uh, he just had a great match. The Hart Foundation just had a great match with the Killer Bees, and um, Brett writes, Vince greeted us at the curtain with great match, guys. And I said, wow, he finally noticed us. He actually spoke to us. If you, if you read the book or you, when you read the book, you'll see this fascination Bret Hart had with Vince. Like, like he looked at him, like he looked at his father, too, like a father figure. And throughout, up until the Montreal Screwjob, they had a father-son relationship. So Brett continues, Jim and I had to wait around all night since we've given King Kong Bundy a ride to the garden and he was on last. In the dressing room, George Scott pulled me aside to tell me 
I'd be working with Ricky Steamboat at WrestleMania 2. Anybody who ever climbed in the ring with Ricky Steamboat would tell you that he was one of the best workers of all time. This was the chance I had been waiting for. So originally, this match that we're about to talk about was scheduled for WrestleMania 2. And had that, sh- that match happened, uh, Seb, it they would have had more time and it would have blown away the, the Bundy Hogan match. It would have upstaged everybody that night, including his own brother-in-law's uh, Dynamite Kid and Davey Boy Smith match against the dream team of Valentine and Beefcake. Because Steamboat and Bret Hart, just imagine the match we're about to talk about with the, with the spotlight on them at a, at a WrestleMania and how Steamboat and Bret Hart live for, for, for uh, an occasion like this. So let me, let me finish real quick and then uh, yeah. we'll get into the match. For the next 19 days, all I could think about was wrestling Steamboat at WrestleMania 2. Ricky was a perfect opponent for me with the way he sold, writhing in pain, making the crowd cry with him. And I was the perfect hot-tempered heel for him, needing to be taught a lesson for my own good. I was looking for, forward to our match in Boston where we'll fill each other out for the big show. And that's where we're talking about March 8th, 1986 in, at the Boston Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. By the way, that night, Aseb, completely sold out standing room only as that was the co-feature to a rematch between Tito Santana and Macho Man Randy Savage. Macho Man was the headliner of this show. Because at that time, you had three house shows throughout the United States every night for the World Wrestling Federation. And it usually would be headlined, one card by the World Tag Team Champions, one card by Hogan, and one card by the IC Champion. The IC Champion at this time was uh, Randy Savage, who had won it the the previous month in Boston when he beat Tito Santana with the Brass Knucks. This was the rematch, March 8th, 1986. Standing room only sellout. Okay, so as soon as I walked into the dressing room at the Boston Garden on March 8th, I could tell something was up by the droop in Chief J. Strongbow's face. At that point in time, Chief J. Strongbow was an agent, and he would give you the finishes uh, of your matches. He pulled me out into the hallway to tell me that my match at Mania had been scratched. I'd been demoted to the 22-man Battle Royal instead. Now we could get on to the match and talk about the highlights of this match. March 8th, 1986, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat against Bret Hart. Uh, Quickly, Steamboat at this point in time had just ended his feud with Don Morocco. And that program at this time, he won that feud with, with, with Don Morocco. And this was right before the Saturday Night's Main event where he would get DDT'd on the concrete floor by Jake the Snake Robertson. Seb, wasn't that the co-feature to Hogan uh, Orndorff at the big event? Oh, man, you're jogging, jogging my memory on this one. Uh, let me I believe, think back to my five-year-old. I believe that was the, the co the, Of course, Hogan Orndorff was the main <laughs> event, but I believe yeah. Steamboat versus the Snake was the co-feature. Well, it was was the was the was the semifinal, but anyway. So this Steamboat's in between feuds at this time. The Hart Foundation at this point in time, they're not really feuding with anybody. They're 
go. It depends on where they're at. They're they're wrestling most of the time. They're wrestling either the killer bees or. Well, not even at this time, they weren't wrestling the Bulldogs a lot like they were at the beginning because the Bulldogs were feuding with the Dream Team. So the Hart Foundation were, 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 were wrestling the Killer Bees a lot, but not necessarily a feud because you didn't see any angles on television at the time. And they would, they would whenever the Hart Foundation were featured in a the match, they tear the house down with whoever their opponents were, whether it be the Killer Bees or the British Bulldogs. I went to many a Madison Square Garden match a card set where it would be garbage until the Hart Foundation <laughs> showed up and then the crowd would wake up. And many times they would end the show with the Hart Foundation uh, wrestling because A, they would lose and B, would be a great match and the fans would at least get something uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, to make it worthwhile sitting down and watching these 300-pound steroid freaks sit down in the headlock for 10 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, there is uh, some legends back then, but man, there were so many bad workers then too. Yeah, and everybody was everybody was juiced up. Even the guys that were great workers at one time were were too juiced, and um, they couldn't move. They were stiff. I mean, Dino Bravo and Butch Reed are perfect examples. <laughs> Early in their career, they were tremendous workers. By the time they got to the World Wrestling Federation. They were so jacked up, they couldn't move. It, it, oh, especially Dino Bravo. Oh, my God. But, yeah. So, uh, the, the Steamboat versus Hart, who's to say that if they wouldn't have had, if they would have had that match at WrestleMania 2, they might have, that might have been a, an ongoing feud. Because at that point in time, there was no plans on putting the World Tag Team titles on the Hart Foundation, we'll talk more about that later on um, when we talk about the Macho Man Bret Hart match next time on the program. Yeah. And I was looking up and for the Bret Hart of the era. Mm-hmm. They actually had him working a few shows with Dynamite Kid. Uh, I can only imagine how crazy that would have been there, in 1986. There was a great match in... 1985, it might have been July of 85. It was at the Cap Center in Landover, Maryland, and they used to show sporadically those uh, cards on cable. And I believe it's on one of Bret Hart's, it's on one of Bret Hart's compilation DVDs. A, a, a tremendous, tremendous match. Uh, Bret Hart has always said, and he still says it to this day, even though him and Dynamite had a falling out because uh, Dynamite used to kick uh, Brett's sister-in-law's ass and they stopped talking. But Brett has always always said that the greatest worker he ever faced was Dynamite Kid. He would never say anybody else. He wouldn't say himself. Now, you know, he, had, he, said, he always said, the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. But he always admitted to everybody that the greatest worker he ever dealt with in the ring and the greatest worker he ever felt was the Dynamite Kid. I wish I appreciated Dynamite more at the time when I was a kid. I used to be all the Davy Boy from the tag team, but just going back and watching Dynamite. Oh, Dynamite was the was the key to that team. That team, Dynamite was, uh, and this is this is Dynamite when he's super juiced. The Dynamite Kid, you've seen if you've seen the matches with him against Tiger Mask in 1981 and 1982 in New Japan. The first time I saw Dynamite Kid was at a August 30th, 1982 MSG. Master Square going house show, him and Tiger Mask 
tore up the audience. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sitting there telling my buddy, man, we thought Superfly Snooker was hot. These guys make <laughs> Snooker look like he's running a marathon, and these guys are, are Carl Lewis. Damn, he was good. <laughs> uh, more like Ben Johnson with all the juicing after, but. Oh, well, at this time, uh, Ben Johnson was around. <laughs> Carl Lewis, it was Carl Lewis <laughs> and Ronaldo Nehemiah in 1982 that was the biggest track stars in, in, in the United States. But uh, and Ben Johnson later on, and Ben Johnson got a raw deal, man. Everybody does what he does, what he did, and he's the one that that that, that got caught. I, that 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 was very suspicious to me. Anyway, let let's get let's get on to this match. Seb, what was the first time you saw this match, and what was your impressions the first time you saw this match before today when you saw it again? First time I ever saw this match was actually when you sent it to me. Oh um, wow! I've owned the Bret Hart DVD for fifteen years. And I've never watched it, and I read that this was one of the matches on it. And I, I made, for I, whatever reason, I just never I, get through all I the matches. I made a conscious effort to include several of those matches throughout <laughs> the next few months that we'll be talking about. So you could just pop that DVD in. Well, the Macho Man match isn't on that DVD, but this match is. And the first time I saw this match wasn't when it happened. wasn't back in 86 because I, I grew up a lifelong, lifetime New Yorker. And I didn't even have cable back then, but even if I had cable, this was on the Ness and uh, Boston, Massachusetts cable network. I wouldn't have been able to see it. I didn't, The first time I saw this match was when I bought that DVD back in 2005. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I was like, how did this was, how was this never fused? <laughs> but then I, I thought to myself, Mick never won work weight, work weight matches. He was never one for work weight. He, it, he want, he always loved larger than life characters. His father loved the big men. Vince loves the big men, and his son-in-law Triple H loves the big men. They've always booked the big man, and except, and we'll talk about this later on. The reason Brett got his shot was because you couldn't book those big men anymore. <laughs> but so work rate, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't care about work rate, and if you could do flips and dives and had a physique like an ultimate warrior, then that caught his eye. Tom McGee, who who Bret Hart Tom made McGee, look like yeah. a million dollars and he wasn't even 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, good old Canadian so Tom this, McGee so as well. The, that's the first time I saw this match and I was like, wow. And it's the first time that Gorilla Monsoon ever called Bret Hart the excellence of execution. The excellence of execution was born that night, that term that Brett would use and Gorilla. And Brett throughout his book always praised Gorilla Monsoon for making him look so good on television. And that, um, I think Gorilla was just telling the truth with what he was seeing. Uh, he saw a great young wrestler who could do it all, hence the name excellence of execution. Jesse Ventura would do the same thing with the British Bulldogs. Jesse Ventura was a heel on that color commentator. First time he saw the Bulldogs, he was like, man, I wish I could manage these guys. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, regardless of the role you're playing, when you see greatness, you have to acknowledge it, which a great announcer has to do. And that's what Gorilla did whenever he saw Brett from that point on. It was always 
all right, the excellence of execution in the ring now. <laughs> and what I love about this match, and today when I look at this match, then I go, I, you put these two the guys together, and out comes 20 years later Hiroshi Tanahashi, because Tanahashi has a lot of Steamboat and Bret Hart in his repertoire. In my opinion, Seb, the two greatest Ring philosophers, ring psychologists are Bret Hart and Ricky Steamboat. They tell a story with their matches. And you've had a lot of great ones, Ric Flair. You've had a lot of great ones. But in my opinion, the top two when it comes to ring psychology, Bret Hart and Ricky Steamboat. And that's why this match clicked from the beginning. The match begins with Bret Hart jumping him, jumping Steamboat from behind. And then you see Steamboat with his incredible arm drags. Why nobody copy? They copy super kicks, but why can't anybody copy those arm drags? Those those arm drags. I think Okada and Tanahashi do similar type arm drags. I love that arm drag that Steamboat does. It's just, oh my god, he does the the arm drags. Uh, he even did his own super kick in this match that was right on. That was beautiful. Oh, that was beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> you had Bret Hart do his signature elbow off the top rope, and he he slams Steamboat's face to the canvas, and he lands a leg drop to the back of Steamboat's neck. I love that. I love that spot. <laughs> this Even the headlock spot where a Steamboat has Hart in it, it's not a rest spot. Yeah. They're fighting to get out of it. These are two masters. You already have one in his prime in Steamboat, and you have another one that's not there yet, but is a quick learner. And I could just imagine, Seb, if this feud, if this match had turned into a feud, if they had a match at WrestleMania, it would have just, and that would have been the co-feature at the big event. And it would have yeah. stole the show from Hogan Ondorf because you would have had a Canadian in the co-feature. And you know that they would just be building on previous spots from the last match. And, you know, the, the psychology that they showed through a series of matches, it's like these guys, everyone else is telling a short story and these guys are writing a novel with their matches. It's just incredible the way that which they, is what, they Which work. is what Steamboat it's did amazing. with Savage the, the, uh, later that year into, the, into the, WrestleMania, uh, the, the following WrestleMania. It's what Steamboat did with Flair throughout their entire runs whenever they had a feud. They told a story. Like in 1989, the three big pay-per-view matches that Steve Boner Flair had, not none of the three looked the same. All three were different type matches. Seb, you just hit the nail on the head. Each match built on the match before. And that's what Bret Hart versus Steve would have been like. And um, it would have been great for Bret because, and he, he admits this in his book, he became the worker he became because of working with Dynamite Kid in Stampede in New Japan. He learned mm -hmm. off the greatness to be, become great him, himself. Um, the man who murdered his wife and son before he murdered himself, you could tell that he studied a mm -hmm. lot of Dynamite Kid and Bret Hart, and when they had their great match in at the Owen Hart Memorial match on, on, on Nitro in 1999, Kepa in Kepa Arena, yeah. and then they had a few more matches later on, Ben... Um, the murderer became a better worker because he was work he was working off of Brett. That's the type of guy Brett was. Brett learned from the great ones, and when you work with Brett, yeah. 
you became greater, greater. And Brett, the chemistry with Kurt Henning was sensational. And you could you see all of that in this match. Even the ending of the match, Seb. I don't know. I don't think I don't think George Scott, who was the booker at the time, came up with this ending. I think this was Hart and Steamboat. I think this was Steamboat telling Hart, look, we didn't get we're not going to wrestle at WrestleMania. Um, I'm going to put you over without putting you over. Yeah. Talk talk about the ending of the match and, and how it was not your typical baby face going over the heel at that time. Well, the end of the match was really Steamboat going heel in the match, pushing the referee out of the way, trying to, to get Brett looking as good as possible. Right. And they did uh, a bit of a do do spot with uh, Steamboat going into the ref in the corner. And then uh, Brett hit him with a one-man heart attack clothesline mm-hmm. uh, and got the visual pin with Gorilla doing a seven count on it, which is crazy. It's not even like he gives a three and a kick out. That was a full-fledged Steamboat was out of this match. He's lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, that's something you'd see happening with, with a heel, but not uh, not a face. It kind of switched roles on this match before Brett and Austin mm-hmm. ever did. Although Steamboat was so over that nothing he was going to do was going to get him booed. <laughs> but uh, Brett got the, the clean visual pin before he, he actually got that was the first time. That was the first time I ever saw in a wrestling match where the, 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 the heel got a break from the referee. Because the heel, I mean, the, the, ba- the baby face got a break from the referee because the heel had him pinned. Even Gorilla, Gorilla and, was it Gorilla and Lord Al? It was Lord, Lord Alfred Hayes. Hayes like, yeah. He's got a pin. He was, you could have counted to seven. You're right. And then finally, uh, uh, Brett gets the referee to wake up, and then the referee counts to two. Steamboat, Steamboat kicks out. Uh, Brett does a cross body block that Steamboat turns around and gets the pin. And the ending of a great match. I love middle of the match, <laughs> middle of the match with Steamboat has. Bret Hart in the in the in in in, in the um, arm lock, and Jimmy Hart comes yeah. to Gorilla. Oh, can you believe what they 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 they're not doing my man right? I mean, Steamboat Steamboat keeps up. Uh, not, not what did we say? Steamboat doing all the keeps legal doing moves. all the legal moves, and Gorilla was like, "Oh, you're right. He is doing the legal moves." <laughs> that was great. By the way, while Jimmy Hart was the perfect manager for Bret Hart at this stage. I always Jimmy Hart was neutered in the World Wrestling Federation because he wasn't allowed to be the Memphis Jimmy Hart. The Memphis Jimmy Hart was sensational. He cut the greatest promos. He was great. You didn't see Jimmy Hart cut a lot of promos as a manager. He'd be screaming with the megaphone, come on, baby, come on, baby. But he would never get in those one-liners that he got in all the time in Memphis. But he was perfect for Jim Neidhart and Bret Hart to be their manager. And Neidhart and Bret Hart were a great tag team because they were a perfect unit. And they blended well. Neidhart was the power, and Bret did the mo- most of the match, and Neidhart come in and do the power moves. They they worked well together. I don't think it would have been a better team if, let's say if it was Bret Dynamite, it, 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 would, it would be one guy trying to outdo the other. But with Bret and Neidhart, each guy knew their roles. 
Yeah, that, that's important to have that in a tag team. You can have a team like the Road Warriors where there's two big guys just out there just bashing people in the head and that works. But I like when you have that little bit of contrast. You got the big guy, you got the smaller guy, two two styles just working together like yeah, a I machine. Mean, uh, it just, it just yeah. makes it feel like you're in a bar with your buddy who's a little bit shorter than you, but you know that he's scrappy and you guys got each yeah, other's even, back. Even with great smaller teams that could do high uh, high spots, the Midnight Express, Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton were different type of wrestlers. Or Stan, uh, Bobby Eaton and Dennis mm-hmm. Condry, they were different types. Stan Lane was more, you know, the pretty boy, so flashy moves. Well, Bobby Eaton was the high flyer. Dennis Condry, Dennis Condry was that dirty, mongrel-looking dude. Uh, Bobby Eaton did all the high spots. When it came to the Rock and Roll Express, Ricky Morton did all the flashy moves. Uh, Robert Gibson would just tag in and score the pin. <laughs> <laughs> the Fantastics were the best where you saw two baby faces that could get you a lot of sympathy. But Tommy Rogers was always much more acrobatic than Bobby Fulton. Bobby Fulton was more the brawler. Tommy Rogers was more the high-flying risk-taker. But the, 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 some of the great tag teams of years gone, gone beyond. Now, let me, uh, let me, get, back, uh, let me get back to uh, – uh, let me finish reading some uh, from that match. In, in Bret Hart's book. Okay. Okay. I, I sulked as I dressed, unable to shake off my disappointment. Ricky seemed to notice how badly I was taking this. Since we weren't going to work together at Mania, our match in Boston meant nothing special anymore. Still, Ricky gave me a genuine finish. We just mentioned. You talked about it in length. At depth and in length about the finish. The, 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 the heel and the baby face switching sides for that moment. Let's go out and show them what they'll be missing at WrestleMania, Ricky said. He was right. I walked out to have what would turn out to be one of the milestone matches of my career. As I made my way to the ring behind Jimmy, I glared cold with anger like I had no intention of losing. The dragon came out looking as dashing and fit as a suave Bruce Lee. That's what I always thought Vince was going with, with uh, uh, Seb, with with Ricky as his Bruce Lee wearing black tights and a confident smile. The crowd rose to greet him from the moment. I jumped in from behind. As we mentioned, we understood each other and we danced a match filled with intense passion throughout the dragon died beautifully in an awesome display of wrestling as art. The great work rarely attainable. It ain't attainable today unless his name is Hiroshi Tanahashi (laughs) built layer upon layer until he cradled me for a one, two, three. While the dragon stood wary but victorious, I lay on the mat pounding my fist. I felt in my heart that it actually was real, that somehow this loss cost me my chance to dance at WrestleMania. The match aired live on NESN. Nesson. This was the, that was the first time Gorilla Masoon ever referred to me as the excellence of execution. Yeah, yeah. And, and a fitting ending to our description of that match. Real quick before we uh we finish, they would be in the battle royal at the WrestleMania two battle royal where you had the football players, uh, including Re- Refrigerator Perry, and smartly done by George Scott. The last three in the ring were Andre in the Hart Foundation, and Andre eliminated the Hart Foundation to win the battle royal. So, two 
consecutive instances, March 8th and WrestleMania 2, which was April 7th, in which Bret Hart, through losing, got over. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I want to mention about this match as well is that uh, we haven't talked about the Wiz Khalifa attire. But Brett is in the yeah, black they and have, yellow. They're not the pink. They're not the uh, pink. They're not the pink no. and black attack yet. No, <laughs> no not yet. But uh, it, it it's so weird seeing Brett back then before he was pink and black because all my memories of him. Uh, but still, he he pulls it off and having Jimmy Hart there, he looks. You can see that he's somebody who needs to break out because he still looks like a star back in nineteen. Yeah, I mean, he was a. Ruggedly handsome, good-looking guy, who had it for his size. And Bret Hart's not a small guy. It was talking about oh, uh, Hulk Hulk was like, oh, I don't want to lose to this small guy. Bret Hart six one. How's he small? Yeah. Bret Hart in, <laughs> in in his prime was six foot one, two hundred and twenty-five pounds. That's a big man. And he was never. And he was always in <laughs> tremendous shape. And he mentioned in the book. That he was juicing at the time, but you could tell. Oh, speaking of juicing, Ricky Steamboat had maybe the greatest physique in the history of wrestling that night. You see how you see how all oh, stacked he was. He was ripped. Uh, he he looked ripped. like Bruce Lee, a foot taller, with a hundred pounds more on him. Because yeah. you know Bruce was 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 ripped, and I think Bruce was juicing, but he was ripped. To the not an ounce of fat on his body, muscles on top of muscles, and unlike the rest of the federation that would juice beyond they uh, beyond uh, compare, Ricky was in his prime physically and athletically, and man, he looked like if you ever t- in in my opinion, the two per- uh, perfect looking wrestlers in the history of the sport. Well, Ricky Steamboat and The Rock, because they could work. They had a charisma. Rock was a, a thousand times, a million times better promo. But they had the, those were the type of guys. And I think because Rock is six foot five, he's the prototype for a Vince McMahon type guy that he wants to push. I don't think he ever had anybody greater looking than that, just the way he was and the way he dressed. Steamboat and Rock were, were uh, uh, if you want to draw up, a wrestler that's going to make you money with the skill set they had. Either one of those guys walking your door, you could do that. Sellouts for years. <laughs> Seb, you still there? Okay, I think uh, I think I lost uh, Seb, but I'm I'm going to wrap up this uh, program. Um, I will. Uh, we'll, we will be back in a few weeks discussing Macho Man Randy Savage versus Bret Hart as we continue to look at the life and times of Bret Hart. If